0: Good evening, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio, the 18th of September 2013. B minus six days. Mike, B minus six days. B for birthday. That's right, September 24th. I will be doing an entire podcast in my birthday suit. <laughs> Farewell, internet. <laughs> but um, I hope you're doing well. Um I'm going to be 47 years old, only 47 years old. I still feel about six. Although one of the interesting things about, uh, as those of you who don't know, I went through uh, through chemo this summer. Uh, going through puberty again is quite exciting. <laughs> Having hair regrow in all the formerly funky bits of my body, all very exciting. Um, I, I've never felt younger <laughs> in about 35 years. So, let's start with. Um, a wee topic. Uh, This is from Reuters. U.S. Navy was warned that the Washington shooter heard voices and not the kind of fall asleep to a podcast kind of voice that you're hearing now. Wake up, this is important. But um, let's just have a quick look at this guy. Well, first of all, the Defense Department Inspector General's report published on Tuesday revealed security lapses that allowed 52 convicted felons to gain access to Navy facilities because budget cuts had undermined vetting. The good news is that unconvicted war criminals, such as Bush and Obama, were not allowed access or did not actually set foot on a Navy base. But these are convicted felons. I say, well, you see, it's, it's budget cuts that have caused the problem. Um, budget cuts is always the great answer for everything in the government. If only we had more money, you see. Uh, we can remember how they like doubled spending per pupil throughout the 90s and 2000s. Uh, they more than doubled spending per pupil. And as we can see, with that massive amount of increased spending, how wonderful education has become uh, in the United States and in Canada. Um, so oh, it's always just a lack of money. That's the problem. Police in Newport, Rhode Island, were so concerned about Alexis's behavior. He's the shooter on a business trip there in August that they alerted Navy police. Alexis told police he believed people were following him and, quote, sending vibrations into his body. I don't believe that we're talking about the Beach Boys' good vibrations. I believe we're talking about something entirely composed of Nutella spread. He told police that he had twice moved hotels to avoid the noise he heard coming through the floor and the ceiling of his rooms and that the people following him were using, quote, some sort of microwave machine to prevent him from sleeping. Based on, this is a quote, a Newport officer uh, wrote, based on the naval base implications and the claim that the involved subject, one Aaron Alexis, was hearing voices, I made contact with the on-duty naval station police. The Newport police report said Navy police had promised to check if Alexis was in fact a naval base contractor. Asked for comment, a spokesman said, that the Navy was looking into the matter without confirming any details. Good time to look into the matter, I would say, um, when you can stack bodies like cordwood a fine time. In addition, CNN reported that Alexis had contacted two Veterans Administration hospitals recently and was believed to be seeking psychological help. Well, I think that's uh, it's all kind of important. There's a pattern to these things. Maybe if you're significantly less than 47, the pattern has yet to emerge from you, but I will lay it out for you. Uh, The government is black magic. The government is indistinguishable from religion. Statism is indistinguishable from religion. What I mean by that is, religion is not answers that may be questioned, but answers which may not be questioned. Religion is a magic pie in the sky bunch of spaghetti-based nonsense that allows you to wave away questions uh, with the absolutism of irrational dogma. Where do we come from? Adam and Eve. Got it. What is a tree? A tree is what God made it to be. What is the relationship between the genders? Well, you see, a woman is to man as a man is to God. Should be kneeling before him. I can't remember how that one goes exactly. But the questions that we have. What is good? What is right? What is true? What is false? Ten Commandments, God's Word, the Pope's Edicts. Earth is the center of the universe because it was created for man and man is the center of God's creation. Why is stealing wrong? God said so. See, these aren't answers. They are barriers to exploration, barriers to curiosity, barriers to understanding, fundamentally barriers to philosophy. You have this giant gray Gandalf ghost that you can wave around to pretend you have answers for stuff, and then those answers harden into dogma, and anybody who questions or opposes them becomes blasphemous and suffers some pretty severe punishments. Those punishments have largely diminished to mere ostracism, but for many people, of course, psychological studies have shown that ostracism produces more pain than physical torture very interesting. This is how we know a free society will work. Now when we have a problem in society or questions about how things are to be done in society we have a God called the state that we can invoke to pretend that we are solving problems. That is what the state is designed to do. It is to provide the illusion of an answer and to actively prevent real answers from being pursued, explored, and brought into being. The belief in a deity opposed and precluded evolution for many years, opposed and precluded the heliocentric model of the solar system, that the Earth was not the center of the universe or even of the solar system, and it still actively prevents the philosophical exploration of ethics in many places. Well, we already have an answer called the Ten Commandments or Moses' law or the Pope's edict. So why on earth would you need any more answers when you already have answers? That's like, if you're driving home, you get home and somebody knocks on your door and says, I'll drive you home. You're like, uh, dude, I'm already home, man. Why do you want to drive me home? And so we have a problem. And there are lots of problems in society. Some tragic, some merely interesting. Yeah. Uh, it would be great if there was little involuntary poverty. And voluntary poverty is fine. And I took a 75% pay cut to do what I'm doing now. It's great. Fantastic. I am not poor. Uh, I have simply made choices, right? The, the guys who are in Los Angeles, who are actors hoping to break into Waitering. No, wait. That's something like some relationship between the two. But those guys, uh, they're poor. They're living stacked up like Courtwood would four to a room in uh, low rent apartments. And they are hoping to break into acting where you can make a fortune. The band's currently grueling their way through touring. I'm going to do a show on Friday with uh, the great Joe Rogan, who spent five years in relative obscurity doing dive after dive in uh, comedy, uh, doing comedy, stand-up comedy. And that's fine. People pursuing their dreams and give up income, give up uh, other opportunities, give up the slow and steady you know, go up the career ladder to pursue their dreams, that's fine. I mean, kids born into poverty through no fault of their own. Oh, sorry, the stork just passed by the low-rent, government-run housing rather than the burbs with the right white picket fence and a car and a half in the driveway, the half being a Prius. So uh, we would love to have that. We would love to have those who are sick get all kinds of medical care. Be great, wonderful. We would love for those who can't read to learn how to read. We would love for those addicted to to self-destructive substances, like politics, to get the help that they need. I do an intervention almost every day, almost every show, try and help people out with that stuff. Be great. But every time a question comes up, all that people talk about, all that people wanna do is pass another law create another commission, create another department, lobby a congressman, lobby a senator, you name it. Pass a law, give more force, concentrate more power. This is incredibly destructive, magical thinking. The government cannot protect you from crazy people with guns. The government cannot keep drugs out of prisons and have turned society into a prison. Entire prison. Everybody's got a cell. And there are high walls and barbed wire and dogs. They still could not win the war on drugs. Governments cannot educate your children. By far the biggest differentiator between success and failure in a government school is the amount of education that goes on at home. Which basically means the government schools are completely retarded but you have a chance to learn something if your parents are educated and interested in your education. The government cannot bring peace to the world. Remember all these wars in the 20th century? All the wars fought to end war? Is it ended? Well, no. The only reason that war even remotely ended in the West was because nuclear weapons made it more dangerous to be a political leader and that everybody could get wiped out rather than you being the hero moving little colored monopoly blocks around on a map. The government cannot protect, cannot protect you from the perils of high finance. The government is addicted to the perils of high finance. The government cannot protect you from inflation. It cannot protect you from unemployment. It cannot protect you from sickness. It can do none of these things any more than reading the Bible. will teach you anything about evolution or whether or not you should do something as simple as wash your hands before operating on someone or eating your food. We really, really fundamentally must outgrow the illusions of answers. Look at science. Look at the incredible progress just over the last 200 years of science. It's completely mind-blowing because that is a discipline. The scientific method is a discipline which specifically denies, rejects, repudiates, and eschews faith, imaginary answers, the pretense of answers, which is really the bloody historical momentum of prejudice. The success of science, the success of medicine, the success of what's left of the free market. The free market facilitates free trade, uh, which is by definition, praxeologically, is win-win trade. You trade five bucks for someone's pen and nobody's forcing you to do anything, nobody's forcing the other guy to do anything. By definition, you must want the pen more than your five bucks and the guy who's selling you the pen must want your five bucks more than the pen. Win-win with price as the fantastic, price and demand as the fantastic mechanisms which move resources to the most efficient allocations. Those two disciplines, science and the free market, have produced such astounding gains over the last 200 years or so that we really need to learn from them. And both of those disciplines rely rely on facts. Both of those disciplines rely on testable theories. Both of those disciplines are objective and there's no magic involved. You, you Try having a business plan where you say, um, well, if we, if we have significant losses in any particular quarter, don't worry, because uh, Jesus will make up the difference. What, that's Jesus, some investor? No, 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 Jesus. His, he's going to be coming back. He'll be sitting on the board and he will you know, I think he's at least got some pieces of silver on him. He will make up the difference. And people will say to you, well, that's insane. Go work for the Navy. In science, there is no big cloud miracle that can occur. In fact, there's an old joke about science where, you know, there's this, uh, huge mass of equations on a blackboard and, uh, there's one big cloud in the middle where it says basically, here, a miracle occurs. And the other guy is saying, the guy who's not the, the inventor of the theorem is saying, well, yeah, let's break this one out a little bit. Let's break this one down. I feel a little confused by this step. There is no miracle in science. There is no miracle in the free market. Free market is objective. You make a widget for 5 bucks you try and sell it for 10 bucks You either sell it or you don't because it's voluntary. You force people to sell it. If you force people to buy it, then that's a whole different matter. You get the government to force people to buy it. You get the government to force people to fund it. You get some green dollars for pseudo-green energy, and then you milk it for a couple of years before going bankrupt and moving to Buenos Aires. But you either sell it or you don't. You either make money or you don't. You're either profitable or you're not. It's either sustainable or it's not. Basic facts. People buy it or they don't. And in science, your theory is either logical or it's not. It's either validated by the evidence or it's not. It's either reproducible by others or it's not. Those are the disciplines that work, that actually produce progress in human society, that actually produce all of the essential things that we rely on. Try running agriculture based on a whim, on a prayer. No, fertilizer is better than bullshit for growing things. So I'm a little sick and tired of every single time we hear anything that is required of within society. Everybody just runs bleating to the government. It's worse than a waste of time. You send me anything that you have found that is a successful government program. Looking for a successful government program is exactly the same as looking for a loving relationship between a rapist and his victim. But send me. I've been looking at this stuff for 30 years. Maybe I missed a bunch of stuff. Maybe I overlooked something. But you tell me something. And this has to be something that was not being improved before the government came along. Or people say, well, air quality, the EPA, the air quality is improved. No, 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 air quality was improving long before the government came along. They just hitched their wagon to that star and pretended that was their solution. Is the welfare state working? Is education working? The whole point of the Federal Reserve, central banking, 1913, its specific and explicit mandate was to end the business cycle, to end dysregularity and highs and lows in the market. How's that working out? How is, um, I don't know if you remember way back in the day, Clinton met with... uh, I think the Israeli Prime Minister and uh, Yasser Arafat at the time, and he had them shaking hands, you see, shaking hands on the lawn of the White House. God knows how much he had to bribe those guys for that handshake. Because he had brought peace to the Middle East, don't you remember? Don't you remember that? Brought peace to the Middle East. Brought cigars to Monica Lewinsky's hoo-hoo and brought peace to the Middle East. What a guy. How did that work out? How's that Middle East peace working out these days? First World War was fought to end war. War. Second World War was really First World War part two. Or as the, uh, one of the high up generals in the French army said after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, he said, this is not peace, this is an armistice for 20 years. And he was right, almost down to the day. I know it's so seductive. It's so seductive to imagine that we just need the government to do something and the problems will be solved. It is a dangerous, dangerous delusion it is like praying rather than going to see a doctor. Except if you're sick and you pray rather than go and see a doctor, most times it's just you who'll die. But when you run to the government, imagining that somehow giving them more power and having them steal more money and having them throw more people in jail and having them have more weapons, more bombs, more aircraft carriers, more bunker busters, more depleted uranium, to wreck the generic in- genetic integrity of an entire nation. When you do that, yes, it's you who will suffer. But all of us rational people are crowded in with you lemmings running straight off the cliff and we can't get out, we can't get away. So maybe listen to reason rather than prejudice. And let's turn this thing around. Thanks everyone. Ready for the caller? All right, Brady, you're up first. Brady, Brady, quite contrady. How does your garden grow? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? No. Just kidding, go on. It's funny you open with that. I get called pretty
1: much all the time, so very interesting.
2: Um, I, I do want to start up by saying I want to thank you because I came across your information, um, maybe a year or more ago. And in the meantime, my life's changed pretty considerably. Uh, I was in the military. I since left the military. I was working for the government. I since left working for the government and my, uh, understanding about how the world really works. You know, I went from, I don't want to drop any names, but a certain radio talk show host down in Texas that happens to be a little bit crazy in my opinion to somebody who is a lot more grounded Uh, so I really appreciate what you're doing thank you Um, I wrote you an email last week about uh, an issue I was having with a friend of mine I don't know if you remember it Uh, can you remind me Yeah, uh, yeah I I'm a competitive shooter. Like, I shoot uh, target rifles and pistols. I've been doing so for a while. And I've been having some emotional problems with a friend of mine that have been, from what I can tell,
0: self-inflicted. Wait, wait, sorry. Are your friends, sorry, your your issues are self-inflicted with regards to your friend?
2: Well, no, my friend hasn't done anything to me um, you know, um, a comment, but it was, my understanding was, uh, in jest. And so a lot of the issues I seem to be having are all internal. No one has done anything to me, um, on purpose to, to make me feel really horrible. So basically the email, uh, I'll explain it here again. Um, I've been a competitive shooter for about six years. Since I was old enough to know. Hold on a second. Siren. Since I was old enough to know about them, I've wanted to shoot um, rifles, pistols. I've been really excited about it since I was a little kid. And when I joined the service, I started shooting on a competitive pistol team. And I got pretty good at it. Um, And in the last year, since I left the service, I've been shooting what in the United States and Canada is called high power service rifle. Um, Basically you shoot at a target at three different ranges. And the idea is to shoot a little tiny group and get really good scores. And I had a friend of mine start with me last year and my other friend wanted to start with me this year. So I went out of my way to get a rifle built for him and find one for him and his son, uh, his son's 13. And I was really excited. Uh, I was shooting, I'm shooting very well this year. I won some trophies and things like that. And, um, lately it's been more of a chore rather than a joy. Um, I've been having some real emotional struggle because this guy's been shooting for three months and he started kicking my butt and, Really, I feel like I should be happy for the guy, but I can't get over how upset it's made me. And like I said, he didn't do anything to me. He just shot really well. So I was wondering what your thoughts might be on this. I, I've had some problems with in the, this in the past, if you want to explore that.
0: Yeah, that's a great quote from Gore Vidal, an American writer who said, It is not enough to succeed. Our friends must also fail. <laughs> Why uh, Why do you like shooting? Why You said from when you were a little kid, why do you think you were drawn to shooting?
2: It's an individual competition, and by that I mean it's not like basketball where you have to pass the ball around or, or football where you're dependent on other people to do certain things. You know, like the the guy blocks and the other guy throws a ball to whoever's downfield. This is all me and my rifle shooting on a...
0: No, I get it. I get it. But I mean, so is um, high jumping, shot put, javelin throwing, um, you know, you name it. There's tons of sports, uh, individual running, um, long distance running, uh, hurdling, uh, you know, just the, these are things where it's just you. So why do you think it was shooting in particular? Way to put me on the spot there. I... Hey, that's what this show is for. I mean, pe- people don't get uh, don't, you don't come on the show to get near the spot. <laughs> the spot is your dance chamber.
2: Well, I, I I mean, I don't know is is it an acceptable answer? Is it? I mean, I just I like it. I like guns. Um
0: I I built a lot of guns. Well, let me ask you some questions. Um uh, are gun is, is gun use uh in your family? I'm I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit. Is gun use in your family? Oh, did we lose him? No, you're still there. Is yeah, is, is gun use in your family?
2: Yeah, we've. I've. Uh, my dad was a, in the Navy SEALs, and so we had guns, but I never really got to start shooting until I was 18, so maybe it was because it was forbidden. My mom didn't want me to have anything to do with it.
0: Your mom didn't want to have anything to do with guns, so she married a Navy SEAL. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hate singers. I just hope that Engelbert Humberdink is single. I've just never said Humberdink on the show before, and I really quite enjoyed it.
2: I, I see your point, and um, you know, I'm, my mom didn't want me to have anything to do with guns, and, and I went working the gun company, so um, it, it...
0: Now, do you love your mom? Uh,
2: yes, I, I love my mom, but I'm um, having trouble with her
0: right now. Well, okay, but, but when you were a kid, you looked up to and, and loved your mom, right? Until she left. When did she leave?
2: when i was 11
0: right why did she leave did she finally figure out the gun thing
2: did she finally figure out
0: what no why why did she leave um, i don't she know leave?
2: she was unhappy with my, she was unhappy with my dad um she found another guy she, she i remember standing in the driveway on um, Midsummer's Day, walking her, watching her walk, walk, just walk down the road. She had
0: nowhere to go. She didn't know where she was going to go, and she just left. Wow. And you don't know why she left?
2: Not exactly. I know that she, we've talked about it a little bit. I've tried to approach this subject with her. In fact, we haven't talked much in the last few months because I've wanted to talk about this. Um, she, she, my dad gained some weight. We were having some financial difficulties. Um, they might have had a fight. There was another guy involved that was staying at the house. I think all those things that I remember when I was 11.
0: Wait, sorry. There was a – did your mom have an affair with someone who was living at your house? Yes. Yeah, she did. I'm sorry. I really do want to get to the gun thing, but I just got to pause a little on that. How how did how like who who was the guy living at your house?
2: I don't even remember his name. He was some guy that was a trucker, and he was like a transient and didn't have anywhere to go. He was a drunk, and I guess my mom was mad at my dad and decided
0: to sleep with him. Um, But why was he at your house? Okay, Brady. So why why was this why was this transient trucker guy living at your parents' house?
1: I don't know. I don't remember. I don't even remember his name. Right. I, just, I remember he was there and he caused some problems, and my mom left with him. That's what I remember.
0: Right. Right. And and so, but you left your mom when you were a little boy, right?
1: That's what I remember.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, and I'm not trying to I disagree with that. I'm just – if you want a possible answer as to why you may have been interested in shooting, well, we try in general to do the things as men that get the women we like. So if you love your mom and your dad was a shooter and he got your mom – then you're like, okay, well, the way that you... Like, we imprint on this, right? Because it's different in every culture and it's different in every subculture. You know, in some subcultures, you know, you've got to get a motorbike to get a girl. In other cultures, it's a convertible. In other cultures, it's the dungeon master's guide. In in other cultures, it's a skin-tight catwoman suit. I know in mine it is, uh, for me. But um, whatever it is that you see as being a successful mating strategy is what you will pursue or what you will be drawn to. So it's like, okay, well the guys who have guns are the guys who get the girls because the first guy I saw with a guy with well, the first guy I saw who got a girl was my dad who he had a gun, right? Does that make any sense?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It makes it makes total sense. Now, the, the the military background of my dad's full side of the family and, you know, the military normally well, have guns. So,
3: yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like I love a man really in uniform is is one of the I think it came out of the Second World War, probably something by the Andrews sisters. But that's the idea. Like women love the man in uniform. So let's go get a job in in uniform kind of thing. Um, What they generally love is (laughs) steady jobs, no firing and secure pensions. But uh, that is – it's it's one possibility as to why you would have been been drawn to this, that – it's simply a successful mating strategy displayed by your dad, which you then naturally will pursue because you're going to assume that if your dad uh, got your mom, who you like, and he's in a society where they're generally approved of, then you're going to do the same thing to, to get a woman. Anyway, I just want to sort of point that out as a possible beginning to this, uh, this thing. But do you want to go back to your friend thing? Well, absolutely. It, it makes sense. So I appreciate it. Okay, so your friend um, is doing really well at shooting, but despite the fact you said he's only been doing it for three months, and you've been doing it for decades?
1: Well, no, six years, half a
0: decade. Oh, you've been doing it for six years. Right. So you're 24.
1: 28.
0: I thought you got your gun when you were 18.
1: I've been... Yeah. Well, I started competitive shooting six years ago. That's what I'm talking
0: about. But you did you did shooting for four years I, before that.
1: I bought my first pistol at 21, so I guess really 21, but I, I'd done a little bit of shooting prior to that.
0: And your friend says that he basically never touched a gun before.
1: No. Uh, um, I, I, this is this one of the things that I understand as well is he used to – do uh archery target and he used to shoot pistol targets and um this is i think this he's only been doing it for three months is my attempt to uh, rationalize or justify my emotional response to the situation i understand that he's been shooting for he's in his 40s i'm 28 he's in his 40s he's been shooting for 30 plus years i think he said he bought his first rifle at
0: Oh, so wait, wait. So you, so you have, wait, wait. So you have, you have six years of experience, and he has thirty years of experience.
1: Right, and I, under, I understand that, but that that still, like, I, I went through that part of it, but I still don't understand. No, but I can I, I can
0: tell you then way. why why it bothers you so much. Okay, and it's related to that's why I asked you why you first got into it when you were a little kid, right? So if success at weaponry is a mating display, this guy's peacock feathers are way bigger than yours. And nobody likes to be the beta male, right? We all struggle to be the alpha male. We all struggle to be the guy uh, who's the rock star, the guy who's, uh, you know, Al Schwarzenegger, the guy who, you know, Wilt Chamberlain can snap his fingers and have, you know, stacks of women fall from the ceiling. So we all have that drive within us, which is why we're talking on this rather than yelling at each other across a swamp, uh, you know, <laughs> in caveman days. We all want to be the alpha male. And if in your mind, based upon your dad and your mom and, and all that, and the early imprinting of what it meant to be uh, sex- sexually or romantically successful as a man, this guy is got a bigger dick. okay yeah that makes sense well just i mean am i way off base here
1: no I you can tell me so. if i
0: am because like don't i mean i the, the amount i know about gun culture is no, I, uh, I
1: think that that's i think that's the, where a proportional lot of the, to
0: the amount the, i know about you big know, Dicks. like jealousy anyway, was
1: fine. one of the oh i'm sorry sorry go ahead i i think that chelsea may have been one of the issues um absolutely and um I, I don't know it it's it's one of those things that you know I'm 28 and I'm still single so the guns didn't help I guess like the you know are
0: there I'm, women at I, these I, events
1: I had a really good a few um, um, emphasis on the word few
0: is it like a libertarian/ no. dance and dragons convention is there like the only women there are like barmaids
1: right. Uh, I guess I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons a while ago, so I don't—I never got to one of those conventions, so I wouldn't be able to compare. it. Right. but yeah, there's, I there's did sometimes there's some yeah, women on the range, and telling. of course, um, and then there's that—if that's part of the issue, I, I guess we—I can explore that part of it as well—is that I have always had trouble um, approaching women, talking to women, and in fact, I just had a conversation about that today. Um, I, it's like there's a pretty girl. She looks like she's interested in me. I can't do anything about it. Why not? I don't know. I, I always
0: come Why up with an excuse I, for it. So all this, oh, come on. You know. You, you can't this, not know. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I don't mind if people call I up and say they you. don't know about it. really obscure personal issues or personal issues that are really hard to grasp. This is not one of them, Right. Why are you cautious okay. around attractive women?
1: Uh,
0: I, the you've already told me. So I, I can we can narrow it down to the things you've talked about in this conversation.
1: I'm I'm not as good as my friend. No, nope. that's the right answer.
0: Why are you cautious around attractive women?
1: Because my mother left me
0: left? Yeah, what happened to your I was dad?
1: I afraid that I was going to
0: get left again. My I mean, your mom didn't just leave just your dad. Your mom had sex with another man in the house. Maybe even in right. the same bed. God help her. And then she wandered no, off down so. the road with nowhere to go. Yeah. Leaving right. her husband and her children behind. This is completely terrifying. Yeah. To contemplate, You know that can happen, you know that's possible, and you also know that that's the kind of woman your dad attracted and that he's your template right. for how to attract a woman, well, which means and, he's your template for the type of woman you are going to be most likely to attract, right?
1: And then the interesting part about that is, now, go forward about 10 years from when my mom left, and I was actually engaged to a woman... And she left me in the same manner. She actually dumped me on the internet while I was in she Texas. She dumped you where? And she was on the East Coast.
0: She dumped you on where? On MySpace. She dumped on you Earth. on MySpace? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> your mom dumped your dad on his space like his house. And, and thank God that she <laughs> did. No, my God. I mean, imagine if she hadn't. I mean, imagine if you had gotten married to this lunatic right
1: well as far as i'm concerned she did me a favor by doing that now
0: oh no no kidding
1: six years later
0: no listen I'm it's like sorry? it's it's like sometimes dating is like you, you step in the forest and you hear a click and you're like is that a mine oh no i'm gonna go in a puff of red dust red cloud of me and they're like oh i only a stick oh you know so yeah the fact that she dumped you on myspace uh, man but, but this is who you are drawn towards because this is your template, right? Right. So until you start working on these connections, then it's dangerous for you to date. It's very dangerous for you. Without dealing with the past, dating is almost invariably a photocopy of your parents. I mean, just inevitably, in the same way that you speak English because your parents spoke English and you grew up in a Christian household because your parents were Christian, you are going to be drawn to the type of woman your dad was drawn to. In the absence of self-knowledge, all we ever do is photocopy history. And I think you really got to start working on this stuff. Um, I mean, you say you're 28, oh, I, right? I, mean, I agree. You That's... don't have forever. I mean, men have a yeah. biological clock. too. And it is, you know, your, your fear of women is probably keeping you from a disaster, but it's keeping you in stasis as well, because you're not actually dealing with stuff, you're just avoiding the, the, the triggers, and then probably getting frustrated about that, right?
1: Uh, yeah. I've been single for, well, it's been six years almost.
0: Right, since you got dumped on, and- on MySpace. I I think, using right. kind of space and interest?
1: and the way I justify it for myself is, well, my money's mine, my time is mine, but I feel like I'm missing out on life also. And fundamentally well, what, do you ask, ask,
0: uh, what do you want out of a relationship? What, what, subject, what, what is sorry, what is the what is the plus that you would be looking for to get out of a relationship? What do you what do you feel you're missing?
1: I, I don't know. Um, I you know, Intimacy.
0: Um, well, what does I intimacy mean to you? Do you mean sex or or what?
1: Yeah.
0: Sex. Okay. Yeah. What else? Uh,
1: sex. I don't in a long time. I
0: guess. You no, I. Um. I can imagine. So you want? Okay, you want sex? But well, you can have sex without a relationship. Blah di blah blah. You can have sex without getting married. You can have sex without commitment if you want. Um. But what else?
1: Well, really, I'd like children one day because I understand that that's the path to the future, and I don't like the way the present is, and I don't like the way history's been. So I think maybe part of why I haven't been getting into a relationship is because I don't think I'm ready to try to be as successful, as successful children as I think that you've been with with your
0: right. Well yeah, I mean, until they come up with the man pouch baby vat, you are gonna need a woman for that. I'm sure Google's working on something right. <laughs> along those lines. But um okay, so so you wanna have you wanna have kids. So what kind of woman do you think will be a great mom to your kids? And where are you going to find her?
1: I'm um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... Uh,
0: well, that's why you're single. The culture that I've... Right. Right, because you're like saying, well, I really want to get a job as an engineer. Well, how do you become an engineer? I don't know. Well, you're never going to be an engineer then, right? You And I'm not trying to be nasty here. Like, I'm trying to really be helpful and, and concise, right? So so if you want... Oh, I know that. If, if you want to, to, to have kids, then the very first thing you want is someone who's going to be a great mom to your kids. I mean... Take it from me as somebody I, I think that my wife is like the best conceivable mom uh, that I can imagine and and I'm incredibly fortunate to to have the the joy of raising kids with her. So you have to look at where do nice women uh warm women helpful women women who can get by on little sleep and still be positive uh women who are uh happy and women who are um you know i don't i don't like complex complex to me is always a synonym for crazy i want to act inconsistently and randomly and i want to follow whatever mood i am in at the moment and i'll just call that complex you know it's like yeah sometimes when i hit the gas my car goes backwards. No, no. It's not broken. It's complex. <laughs> no, it's just fucking broken. Well, and, so There's and
1: um, an interesting part about that is... Uh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, there's an interesting part about that as well. My friend who started shooting three months ago with me in this particular sport, he actually... I've known him for... It'll be four years here pretty soon. And he's got an amazing wife. He's got a wife. a really amazing wife. The lady okay. is incredible. she's suc- successful she's raised great children um, nice lady tries to have a smile on her face um, and so there's a the type of lady I'd like to and, and, and that plays right into this emotional.
0: Well, dude, if you think if you think his wife is really great, what's something you could do? You could ask her if she knows any women who would be good for you. And you can say, I really like you. I think you're a great wife and a great mom. And so I assume that the people, you know, are nice people um, similar to you. Um, Do you have a clone twin? Do you have a twin? Do you have friends? Do you have uh, you know, friends of friends? Can you put the word out? I'm looking to find a nice girl. I'd like to settle down at some point, but I don't know where to find. Well, there's someone who knows, right?
1: Right. Well, and of course now doing that is it's really appropriate. I, I just moved up here where I'm living now within the last six months. So getting to know the area, this is, this is a good way to explore it as well.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I, you, when you move to new places, you you just gotta be, you gotta be the icebreaker. You just gotta go talk to people, meet people. You gotta just elbow your way in, you know, because everyone's already got friends, you know. You <laughs> had a new friend for, right? It's risky, you know. But you just gotta elbow your way in, and you know, um, you can ask. You know, I mean, there's some things where you know it's more or less likely to meet, you know, nice women. You know, and I'm just gonna go on a really tiny tirade here, so I'll I'll be brief, and it's probably all bullshit, but anyway. Um, bars, not a great place, uh, to meet, uh, nice women. I think, um, if you join a sports league or a sports team, I think that that's where I met my wife. Um, and, uh, you know, I kept, uh, um, I kept offering to be her luge partner, which she found a little bit unusual cause we were in a volleyball club, but I said luge, man, luge plus volleyball equals a baby with a head for a basketball. I don't know. But, um. You can go. To, you can go to cooking classes. You know, if you want to find someone who's going to be a, a good mom, then she may, in fact, be interested in cooking. Uh, at least, probably more so than if you want to set up a Breaking Bad-style meth lab. So I would, you know, find photography classes. I don't know any like anywhere where there's some sort of a, join a choir, join uh, a, an a um, uh, an amateur uh, play, you know, the acting squad or something like that, right? The playhouse or something. Uh, and uh, oh, these are places where you're going to, I think, find nicer people than the typical places where people go, which is sort of like meat markets and so on. Right. So and what you know, my suggestion is that, I mean, you're still young, so you don't probably really get that whether you succeed or fail, you're going to die anyway. And, and the worst thing that you want thrown on top of you is Six feet of dirt plus regrets. So, when I have been attracted to a woman, although it scared the living crap out of me, uh, I would go up and say, I'm very attracted to you. I would like to go on a date. Would you like to do X, Y, or Z? I'm sure Luge was involved as well. But the important thing is just to go and talk and go and ask. There are no points in life for not asking for what you want. There's no, there are no points in life for being indirect, for crossing your fingers, for tossing your hair and hoping that someone's going to come and talk to you, for being passive. There are no points. You go to the same place whether you get what you want or you don't. You get thrown in the ground forever and ever. Amen. Whether you ask for what you want or wait for it to come to you. So my suggestion is go to where women are who are going to be nice and reasonable and and all that kind of stuff, not these sort of shallow, vainglorious vixens that so infest (laughs) urban areas. But if you find someone attractive, tell them that you would like to go on a date with them and don't cop out and say you know let's let's go to a club with some friends <laughs> you know like it's some sort of i mean nobody's we're not idiots we know that there's a mating display we know that that i mean once i was going i used to live in 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 downtown toronto when i was going to pick up some japanese food for dinner and i got my food to go and i saw this woman uh sitting I think four tables away, just on my left-hand side, and she was eating alone, and I thought she just had a really great look to her, her aura, <laughs> I don't know what you to say. And so I, I took my bag of food and I walked over and I said, um, listen, I, I noticed that you're eating alone. I'm eating alone too. Would you like to eat alone together? And she sort of laughed and she said, sure. And so I pulled up and we started chatting. And we ended up going out for a while. It didn't work out. But, but the point is that I don't look back and say, oh, I remember that, that woman in that restaurant. Ah, I can't believe I never said hi to her. I don't think that I've ever been really attracted to a woman and not asked her out. And that doesn't mean that they all said yes. But... You're gonna be dead either way, and I think that also when you get older, the stuff that you look back on that you were scared about when you were younger just seems so silly, so ridiculous. Oh, like I thought, oh, well, what if that woman had said no to me? Well, so what? What if she says yes? What if she says no? I'm in a relationship right now, but I got a great friend who would who would be very who would like to meet you. And it's really, it is really important in life to ask for what you want. Like I wanted to do this with my life, which is like the, the seventh thing that I wanted to do uh, with my life. I, I wanted to do this. And I can't do this without asking for help. Because I'm quite partial to food. Food. And shelter. It's cold up here in Canada. And so I I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask. FDRURL.com forward slash donate. Will you help out? And I try to make it ent- entertaining and not pressure, pressure and, and all that kind of stuff. But I have to ask every day. Now, lots of people who, who do shows, they kind of ask implicitly. Right? Because they basically know that they're not in the business of delivering their thoughts to the listeners. They're in the business of delivering people to advertisers. They're like a big conveyor belt, people to advertisers, people to advertisers. So they need you to listen because otherwise the advertisers won't pay them as much and blah, blah, blah. But I have to, because I don't have any advertisers, I don't sell anything. I have to ask directly every day. Now, if I had said, well, I don't, ugh, I don't like it, it's imposing, I don't want to ask, blah, blah, blah. Well, then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Which, you know, occasionally... <laughs> when donations are low seems like a fine idea but you just have to ask for things in life and we don't like to ask for things in life because there's lots of jerks out there in the world who when you ask for something will use it as a one-up will use it as a status thing well oh I'm going to say no to you and I'm going to enjoy saying no to you and I'm going to withhold from you and I'm going to whatever right and those people should not rob you of what you could have in life just by asking for it. Don't let jerks who look down on you for wanting or needing something prevent you from getting what you want or need. We don't actually need to do much to fight bad people in the world. (laughs) We just kind of have to ignore them and, and it works out. But Ask around, ask where the nice women are, hopefully they're not all at church, (laughs) but ask where the nice women are, go where the nice women are, and talk to them. And if you're interested, ask them out. I mean, I wish there was something simpler, but uh, just do that. We can't place our self-esteem on the yeses and no's of others because most of life is people saying no. Most people who listen to the show never kick a penny in to help support it. And most people who listen to the show brush past it and I don't know if they come back or not. What were the stats on Elysium, Mike? Oh God,
1: Most people dropped off within the
0: first two minutes. or the- Yeah, because I got a video called The Truth about uh, Elysium, the Matt Damon movie. Hour 47 minutes. <laughs> Longer Longer than than the the actual movie? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's longer than the movie. And it's got like 75,000 views. Part of me says, wow, 75,000 times two hours. That's like 150,000 hours of pure concentrated philosophy being injected like squid venom into people's brains. And then Mike pointed out to me that you can, in fact, find out on YouTube when people drop off (laughs) the video. And most people got to, hello, this is the truth about... Oh, my God, this isn't the real movie. (laughs) I thought some of the truth about Elysium, and it's an hour 47. Oh, my God, it's the movie. There's a picture of Matt Damon right there. I'm in. What? Who's this guy? (laughs) not Matt Damon. Damon. (laughs) (laughs) He's even dissing public school teachers. He's certainly not Matt Damon. Actually, so does Matt Damon, because that... Lefty Parasite sends his own kids to very expensive private schools <laughs> because because the government schools, you see, aren't lefty enough, right? So, what the hell was I talking about? You're
1: going to die. You, you were encouraging me to go talk to women.
0: Uh, are we negotiating for your pay again? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, anyway, so uh, the point is that uh, I'm right, and you should get laid. No, um, <laughs> you should just go and ask. Just go and ask. Just go, go and ask, and um, don't let don't let people who may make you feel bad for asking so, uh, get in your oh, way.
1: Oh, let me ask that, and I'll just just to close it off. So that, that that's all tied into that full circle. I mean, it makes sense, but I just want to I want you to close it for me. That full circle is. The guy beat me. I felt bad about it because his peacock feathers were brighter than mine, and
0: and he got the better was, wife, right? He got
3: the, the great woman. wife, right? So,
1: yeah, that's that connects dots that go back along. I mean, life. he's the alpha, but really you
0: in, in this scenario, you're not. In, you're not even the beta, right? Because the Betas cluster around the Alpha and get the leftovers, and the Zetas are the ones who are just like the general pool of people waiting and single and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so yeah, he's got the whole Alpha thing going, and you feel resentful towards the Alpha thing. And that resentment is healthy. I mean –
1: And I, I actually remember having the thought uh, that can't I just be good at one
0: thing? yeah and and I think it's really important to be good at one thing. I would just argue that it's really important to be good at virtue rather than shooting targets. and and the virtue okay. is is the courage and the I honesty agree. and the integrity to go after and get what you want out of life. There are no second prizes. there's no backup plan, there's no plan B. there's you know like you know you say, well I'm gonna go to to art school, but I'm gonna have a plan B. You know, like I give myself a couple of years and then plan B or whatever, right? But but in life as a whole, there is no no backup plan. There's no plan B, there's no in my back pocket, there's no there's no substitute for for the thing itself. And so go get what you want, go ask for what you want, and go and have a plan and execute on it to get a woman who's gonna be great for you. And be selective. You have this show, you have values, you have a great way of evaluating people philosophically. I've done a whole bunch, I've done a whole podcast on how to find a nice girl. Yeah. And
1: it again.
0: yeah, I mean, go, go get, you know, a whole bunch of marriages have come out of this, this show. And one or two nice girls. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's because I hope that I, I sort of show that you just, you just got to ask, and you just got to... People will People will probably help you. You know, a lot of people feel bad about asking for help. Do you ever feel bad when someone asks you for help? Like, if someone stops, you're waiting for a bus, and someone stops and asks for directions. I always feel bad if I don't know. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not from around here, or I take the bus everywhere, and therefore I'm retarded about street names. <laughs> All I listen for is dings like some Pavlovian dog. So... Most people will really want to help you, but you really do have to have the vulnerability to to ask for stuff. So just ask the women around. Say, "Oh, you're a great woman. You know, you look like a great wife. You're a great mom. Where can I find someone like you?" Um, I would really. I'm 28. I'd like to settle down. Um, nobody uses MySpace anymore, so I'm pretty safe that way. And um, you know, just just go get it. All right.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Very uh, much. Uh, keep keep up the good work, and I'm glad to be a subscriber.
0: So. Oh, you're a subscriber. Shit, I should have been nicer. Well, um, big kiss. <laughs> 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 Thank you right. so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, have a great night, and keep me posted if you can. Let me know how it goes. Thank you. All right, take care. All right, Matthew. I guess if you want to go ahead.
3: Okay. Uh, can uh, you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so uh, I don't know how much you heard of my.
0: You grew up in a religious family.
3: Ah, yes. Okay, good. So uh, yeah, I grew up in a religious family. I was very uh, in. I was very excited about evangelism, and I cared a lot about that. Uh, but when I went to college, I was exposed to these ideas, and I realized that I was kind of insulated from. Really different ideas that you know that kind of caught me off guard, and I kind of changed a lot. I kind of. Uh, about two years ago, I kind of became an atheist and kind of started really thinking for myself and stuff like that. So, um, um, it's been very liberating, uh, but also been kind of painful. the 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 kind of social collateral damage and the deconversion process can be pretty um, can be pretty painful. But um, I think uh, it, overall it was good. My question, um, though, is.
0: Just before you get to your question, uh, okay. and not to make light of obviously a very difficult transition, but a song lyric that we were playing around with earlier today comes to mind. You can think if you want to, you can leave your friends behind, cause your friends don't think, and if they don't think, well, they're no friends of mine.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I I think I've really been realizing that, and even though um, a lot of my friends. I mean, I grew up. All my friends that I grew up with were um pretty much exclusively Christians and it's been really interesting to try to they're really the only friends that I still have and I'm trying to get some other friends but it's been really interesting to, for me to try to somehow maintain these relationships because they're still really good people and I still really like them a lot um, so uh, but one thing that I've really been um. I've been listening to your show I've been uh, thinking about uh, self-knowledge and uh, reason reasoned evidence and uh, objectivity as um a worldview. Um, and uh, but a part of me is very wary of really um, I mean, I, I, I agree, I agree with a lot of things, and I accept a lot of a lot of the things you say, but it's really difficult for me having come uh, having come from that that environment of being you know told what is right and what's true. And then later on, discovering that hey, okay, this n- now, okay, that that was actually wrong. Oh, Matthew. Yeah. Hello. Matthew. Yeah.
0: Could I make a tiny request? Sure. Yeah. Would you mind getting to a question? Yeah. Love you dearly. No, yes. no, no. But no, no, it's, uh, it's. Do need you to, to get to a question?
3: For sure, Mike. My, my my question is, I was wondering if you had um, uh, let's see. If you if you knew any alternative viewpoints that you found that you find antithetical to your own that I can kind of look at for myself to, to kind of like see the counter arguments of what the things oh. that you say.
0: That's kinda of, that's so like you, kind of things you, you, wait, that Are like. you looking to find wait, are you looking to find <laughs> cultural or philosophical or media based perspectives in opposition to, say, anarchy and hard atheism?
3: Yeah. And and
0: philosophical. Anti-spanking and uh, <laughs> voluntary adult relationships, including the parent-adult-child relation. Are you looking to find things that may be opposed to things that I'm saying? Is that no? Well, can I well, can I make a suggestion? If you stop sure. listening to this show and turn about, turn on almost any other conceivable <laughs> show, true. pick up almost any other conceivable book, uh, or just you know turn on the TV. And you will find uh, just about everything antithetical to what I talk about. Now, I'm sure mm-hmm. that's a bit of a facetious statement, but are you looking for very specific recommendations to oppose the perspectives that I put forward? Y-
3: yes. M- more specifically, uh, yeah, it should have been more specific, but specifically philosophical in terms of uh, objectivism and um, that those kind of things. If you knew any... M- more uh, like a worthy adversary in terms of uh, philosophy in in that regard
0: sure look I mean if if you want uh, if you want the diametrical opposite of stuff that I put forward you can go to uh, final bum buddy Plato uh, who wrote um, very passionately and powerfully for the need for uh, a hierarchical totalitarian dictatorship to run society uh, part of this was his own mysticism, and part of it was the horror uh, at the Athenian democracy's murder of his great mentor, Socrates. Uh, but he basically said, um, well, you know, it, uh, this freedom thing where, where the rabble have a say uh, is clearly disastrous since it gives the best men in the world a tasty draft of hemlock to down their to drown their sorrows in. So we need the philosophers to become kings or the kings to become philosophers or something like that. And so we need a society which is strictly hierarchical where people tell you what occupation you're going to have. They tell you the kind of freedoms you're going to have. uh, And children are raised by the state. And there's none of this screwing around with all of this free choice because uh, people are so irrational and so herd-based and so destructive that when everyone is equal, the fools overrun and eat the brains of the intelligent. I I say that speech with some passion because I have some sympathy (laughs) for it mm-hmm. at times, without a doubt. But um, read, read your Plato. He is uh, he is fantastic when it comes to opposing what you and I would consider to be some fairly essential liberties. If you want to read Aristotle for a truly um, hierarchical view of women and slavery, uh, Aristotle, a great uh, philosopher in many ways, but two weak spots, his contempt for women and his justification of slavery, not exactly unimportant when it comes to virtue. Uh, If you want to, um, uh, I believe that I have uh, dealt with the is-ought dichotomy. The is-ought dichotomy has been around for a while. It was very explicitly formulated by David Hume. Uh, comes out of the Scottish Enlightenment. And uh, he basically said, there is nothing in the world that dictates how the world ought to be. Well, we shouldn't kill. Well, there's nothing in nature that says you shouldn't kill. In fact, Nature is basically driven by two things, killing and getting laid. That is nature. I mean, there's this great quote, I can't remember who said it, and said, you know, if you look at a beautiful winter sorry, a beautiful summer glade, you know, with the crickets and the birds, and you see thousands and thousands of tiny animals and plants all just trying to get laid. And that, of course, is a lot to do with it. It's why you hear the beautiful crickets, it's why you hear the frogs, it's why you hear the cicadas and so on. So Uh, He says there's nothing in the world that tells us how the world ought to be. We ought not to steal. There's nothing in reality that that says that, Uh, that that, that these are things we can impose if we want, but let's not pretend they're in reality. So if you want to view UPB with great skepticism, you can read uh, David Hume. If you want to view reality with great skepticism, then uh, Descartes, uh, I think Second Meditations is the place where you really want to go, where he basically says, okay, maybe uh, I'm just a brain in a tank and and all of my sensory input is controlled by some nefarious demon who's seeking to control and obscure everything that uh, I see. And this is, you know, the famous, I I think therefore I am kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to have extreme skepticism, with regards to um reality itself and the senses and so on then then you go to Descartes um, trying to think of uh, uh other oppositions i mean saint augustine is a great guy to go to if you want to um read skepticism uh with regards to atheism uh, he of course um you know the great challenge of the the catholic church in the middle ages was that they they worshipped the ancient Greeks. I mean, who'd been kept from being destroyed in the Dark Ages by the Muslims? They 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 just called Aristotle the philosopher. Like, he wasn't like, well, one of the philosophers, the philosopher. Uh, but, of course, they didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know anything about um, any of the modern Catholic teachings. And so they had this particular challenge and problem, which was that there was a lot of atheistic thought in... The ancient world, and and Socrates big crime was twofold: one was corrupting the youth, and the second was not believing in any gods, of being an atheist. And so the Greek, uh, the, the the Catholic Church wrestled a lot with atheism in the Middle Ages. And uh, there's lots of great repudiations of athe- atheism. And um, I think there is nine proofs for God put forward by a lot of medieval scholastics and so on. Are well worth reading. I mean, very important. You want to test yourself uh, against the very best uh, if you want to really fit yourself into a Prussian-style Germanic hierarchy, then there's no better person to do that than Immanuel Kant. Um, His higher reality, his new aminal reality, as he called it, which is very similar to Plato's world of forms, is absolutely well worth examining. Um, Because this always goes hand-in-hand. This is my sort of master thesis. This also always goes hand-in-hand with dictatorship. A higher realm always goes hand-in-hand with dictatorship. Because if the truth is inaccessible to reason and evidence, then it has to be imposed by a hierarchy which is why every time you see people proposing higher realities, they always end up proposing dictatorships. Um, Hegel is really quite fascinating for his sort of world spirit and this sort of grandiose, again, Germanic view of how history works and uh, all that. Uh, if you really want to get great criticisms of capitalism, of course, you go to to Karl Marx uh, and and people like that. Uh, he's uh, A sourly brilliant writer and and well worth reading Uh, an excellent uh, uh, Marx and Engels were excellent polemicists uh, excellent um, propagandists I mean there's almost no better uh, closing lines in literature political literature than the communist manifesto Uh, workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your chains that is uh, as fantastic a bumper sticker as you're ever going to find in this uh, in this stuff I wish I could offer you some good critiques of objectivism, but the critiques of objectivism tend to be penned by tiny-minded little bitches who just think that dumping sour and acerbic adjectives on her smoky grave uh, is enough to disprove her ideas. I have not seen a good uh, academic... Uh, clear criticisms of objectivism, and and this I think just goes to to show the strength of objectivism. If objectivism was truly ridiculous, then it would be very easy to point out. But what people do is they say, well, Ayn Rand, uh, she took social security when she was older, and she thought that the Palestinians weren't as weren't the equals of the Jews, and she was down on homosexuality. Uh, uh, ergo, Nick Nick Cage's hair is a bird, and therefore. Um, she's wrong uh, it's it's tragic but this is natural when you don't have uh, good critiques to offer so uh, anyway that's just a very I mean there's tons more but those are some very brief places that I think you could do and it's, it's a great thing to do in you know, a read read opposing uh, read stuff that is opposite to your viewpoint is very important I, this is why I think you know anarchists uh, atheists particularly the real atheists not those mealy mouth agnostics um, I mean we are just smarter I mean, we're not, we're not smarter mm. because we're just, I think, born that way. Um, otherwise, we'd be Lady Gaga's backup dancers. But <laughs> we're smarter because you just, the more weight you lift, the stronger your muscles get. In other words, the more opposition to your movement, the more opposition to your progress, the stronger you get. And the more your ideas are in conflict with society, assuming that they're rational, the more your ideas are in conflict with society, the more pounding opposition you get and the stronger your brain gets. So, um, whenever you're tempted by a particular viewpoint, I think it's really important to read uh, read criticisms of that viewpoint, and hopefully that way the uh, the strongest aspects of that viewpoint will survive and and flourish. Does that, does that make any sense?
3: Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much. That's helpful.
0: You're very welcome. And I always throw in a plug uh, for this, um, which is uh, Paul Johnson's book, Intellectual, so I'll do a review of it one day.
4: Cool, Just yeah. a...
0: Incredibly fantastic book. Um, Also, Arianna Huffington wrote a biography of Picasso that is really interesting. Uh, It is is deeply shocking, at least it was for me, to, to realize that most of the people who were revered as artists and intellectuals in the 20th century were completely evil psychos in their personal life. I mean, Picasso was a complete monster. Perhaps the worst of all was Bertolt Brecht, uh, the author of um, uh, a very, very famous left-wing plays, but also very good plays. Um, it, with Kurt Weill, he wrote, uh, it's a three-penny opera uh, and so on, which is an adaptation, I think, John Gray's A Beggar's Opera from the 18th century. Lord, I'm testing the limits of my historical knowledge now, but <laughs> uh, Hemingway was a monster. Um, I mean, just uh, Shelley, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the the English poet, was a yep. monster. Uh, Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, was a complete clusterfuck of a human mess. I mean, this is the guy who wrote very movingly about tender, the tender education of children, who left four of his babies in a French peasant orphanage right in the 18th century. I mean, just dumped them there, basically rang the doorbell and ran away. Oh. Karl Marx you know, personally was a complete monster. This is the man who railed, you see, against the exploitation of the capitalists, uh, by the capitalists of the working classes. You see, the working class is terrible. Don't want to exploit the working classes. And uh, he basically banged his maid. uh, And then when she got pregnant, forced her to give away the baby and just kept her as his basic sex slave for his whole life. Because remember, it's really bad to exploit the working classes. I mean, just a complete and total monster. And what it does is it it gives you it gives you significant pause when you look at the personal lives of these people and the degree to which they elevated themselves as the instructors of mankind and you see what complete monsters they are in their personal life i mean to some degree to a smaller degree it's what happened of course with the catholic church you know and other churches that elevate themselves to be the moral instructors of mankind which means that maybe you shouldn't be sending pedophilic priests from place to place to rape more little children rather than lose a little bit of income or get them into some kind of counseling and keep them away from children. You know, the people who claim to be the moral instructors of mankind, who who claim to tell people what to do, are almost invariably complete sociopathic monsters who act in utter opposition to their stated and demanded values in almost every aspect of their personal lives. Lifting the lid of a public finger-wagging moral instructor of mankind will almost always reveal an intense hell of truly disgusting, vile, abusive, horrendous uh, behavior. And they, they just use people around them like human toilets, um, not just for sexual lust, but for, for anything, for, for, for money, for favors, they lie, manipulate, cheat, Beg, steal, stab, kill—I mean, just, just completely—they're they, they, completely horrendous behavior. Now, I—my UPB brain is tickling my brain and saying, "Ah, but Steph, do you not claim to be a moral instructor of mankind?" And the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. You know, I think you could comb through all of my podcasts. I'm—I—I I can't even think of a time where I ever told someone what to do. I just, I can't, I can't think of a time where I ever told someone what to do. I have told people, I don't think you should do this or the consequences of this seem to me rather bad or, you know, if people say to me, well, I can't leave my wife. I say, well, you can. I don't know if you should, (laughs) but you can, right? Because I have (laughs) to tell people the truth and the truth is you can leave abusive relationships, whether they're parental or spousal or whatever. But you'd be really hard pressed. I mean, there probably is one or two I can't think of any, but you'd be really hard pressed to find times where I actually told someone what to do. Now, of course, me telling someone what to do is completely irrelevant. I mean, I can tell you if you want to go and stick four grapes up your nose, and what are you gonna do? (laughs) Well, you're gonna be really difficult and stick five grapes up your nose, uh, just to, to show me how independent you are. So, I mean, me telling people what to do doesn't mean anything, but even if it did, I'm extremely reticent to tell people uh, what to do so I'm really not a moral instructor and certainly even if I did have opinions about what people should do with their lives as an anarchist I can't possibly enforce that <laughs> I can't possibly enforce that because there's no state that I can use as the mechanism by which I make people do what I think they should do there's a few things I know that people shouldn't do um, you know the, the four big bands is rape, theft, murder and assault yeah don't do those things um but as to what people should do? I don't know. I, I really I really couldn't I couldn't tell people. I try to give them things they may not have thought of, perspectives they may not have thought of, some hard won perhaps experience of mine. But I am not at all a moral instructor of mankind. In fact, I am incredibly opposed to moral compulsion of any kind. Of any kind, starting with spanking. Uh, all the way through to confinement in schools, uh, all the way through to, to government jails and and so on. I am uh, intensely and passionately committed to not being any kind of moral instructor or enforcer. Uh, I don't know what people should do with their lives. Um, I don't think I've ever told people, you must not ever hit your children. I've told them what the consequences are of hitting children. I've made the case that that spanking children is a violation of the non-aggression principle. But giving people orders is ridiculous because if you don't have any power to enforce your orders, but you're giving people orders, then you're delusional. And if you do have the power to enforce your orders, then you're tyrannical. You're, you're dictatorial. I mean, it's like you, you can tell your kid what he's going to have for dinner if you lock him in his room and slide something under the door like he's in solitary or something. So, yeah, I mean, I don't put myself in the category of, of a moral instructor of, of mankind. Um, so I think that I'm sort of not in that particular prescription. But, you know, when they say it's an old, it's an old statement, right? Judge, judge the man by his deeds, not what he says. I, mm. I can't hear what you're saying over what you're doing. Actions speak louder than words. And when people do claim to be a moral benefactor of mankind and claim to have the insight to tell the entire fucking species, the entire fucking planet what to do with, um, you know, the, the couple of decades of life that we're granted, then the first thing I do, I don't really care what they say. first thing I do is, okay, well, um, let's have a look at, at your life. Let's see how you lived these values that you espouse on others. And can you imagine... Can you imagine the the human cry that would erupt around the internet for those interested in what I'm doing if it were to be found that I were spanking my daughter? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? People would just dismiss what I was saying with no further argument. People are trying to dismiss what Dr. Benjamin Spock said about anti-spanking in the nineteen fifties because one of his grandchildren committed suicide. Well, that's what you know. And he'd even spank his kids. So imagine if if I, you know, all about peaceful parenting and it turns out that I'm spanking and starving my daughter. People would immediately dismiss everything that I had to say. Well, I'm very much the same when it comes to other thinkers or other people who propose uh, exactly how they should, uh, how everyone should behave and what they should do. So you can save a lot of time just by looking at, it's not perfect, but you can save a lot of time by looking at um, what these thinkers do. And one other thing that I thought of and then forgot, which is, um, if you want to really look at, I think one of the most competent defenses of the welfare state, of, of sort of the mixed economy—some free markets, some government controls or redistribution of wealth—you can read John Rawls' *The Theory of Justice*.
3: Okay.
0: Um, he, he basic his basic argument is, if if you were floating above the world before you were born and you didn't know. If you were going to be born rich or poor or smart or dumb or sick or healthy or whatever, then you'd want a society that balanced. So if you were smart and and, and healthy and all that, you'd want a society that would let you have a free market enough to do, to pursue your opportunity, to achieve your bliss, to whatever, and build your companies or, or start your motorcycle club or whatever it is you're going to do. You want a society with enough freedom to give you scope for your abilities. On the other hand, if you ended up being born sort of sick and poor, you'd want a safety net so that you didn't end up starving to death. So that's why we have some free market and some government redistribution of wealth because there's that. So I mean, I've done a podcast on it, I won't get into the arguments against it here, but it's a pretty competent and and fairly compelling argument for the what's called the mixed economy, half sort of free market and half government control interventions and redistribution, so Okay. So anyway, that's uh, my. But yeah, really, read read intellectuals. Uh, it is. I still remember the the the. I read that book in two days straight. It's a pretty big ass book. I read the book two days straight, and it was an incredible liberation for me, to um, to see how much work still needed to be done by the. Because his argument says, well, these these artists and these philosophers and these, Edmund Wilson, who wrote To the Finland Station, was an avowed Marxist, uh, who wrote an entire history of Soviet communism, and To the Finland Station refers to um when the German. High command uh, sent Lenin through Finland to go to Russia to start the revolution to get Russia out of the First World War because America was coming in. Thus, America's involvement in the First World War started the communist dictatorship and blah, 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 blah. So, this ass clown, I mean, it's entirely around communism and a heavy socialist and and take care of the poor, redistribute the wealth, high taxes, government control. This fucker didn't pay his taxes for over 10 years. (sighs) He paid not one goddamn penny of taxes for over 10 years. In fact, it it was so bad, his accountant said, basically, you're going to have to flee the United States. Like, you don't even talk to these people. Like, Just get out of the country and never come back. Wow. I mean, goddamn Michael Moore, he's pretty left, would you say? (laughs) Kind of a socialist guy. Guy takes millions of dollars in tax breaks every time he makes a movie. And he hires non-union people to work on his... (laughs)
3: his movie.
0: I mean, come on. I mean there's one of the few people whose hypocrisy is is even bigger than his fucking belt anyway. Um, so I just look at look at the people and and don't look at the philosophy first. The philosophy is usually a distraction from the individual and it doesn't mean that if an individual has some elements of hypocrisy or it doesn't mean that then you dismiss everything but if they're completely acting in opposition to what they claim to be the ideal you know what does jesus say mm. to the catholic church what does jesus say to the pope whatever you do to the least among you you do unto me now mm. i have not seen and here we're going to test the existence of a deity, see if any kind of lightning is going to come through the window and strike me down. Whatever you do to the least among me, you also do to me. I don't believe that ass-raping Jesus has ever been <laughs> on a stained glass window in any Catholic church. <laughs> I, I mean, I've never seen, and I've looked. I mean, i I've visited a lot of churches, and I've looked. And given that I don't believe that ass-raping Jesus is... An ideal, but Jesus says, whatever you do to the least among us, in other words, the children, he says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Jesus focuses on <laughs> what you do to the children, you do to me. Yeah. And it's really hard to have a lot of respect for the clergy, which covered this stuff up and, and fought tooth and nail for restitution and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, look, look out for the moral... Instructors of Mankind, um, it's almost always a complete and total scam.
3: And you you mentioned a book, uh, The Biography of Picasso. Uh, who is that by? Who is that author?
0: Oh, uh, you know, the Huffington Post? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just – I'll get the title of it. Uh, Ariana Huffington wrote it. Uh, it was some time ago. Now, she's, of course, a complete leftist. But a uh, uh, C- Creator and Destroyer was – the uh the name of the book and it's really quite uh it's a good book it's a good book i mean he is a uh, you know she she really worked hard she she interviewed his daughter he she interviewed his uh francois his mistress of 10 years the mother of two of his children and so on and it's worth having a look at uh the degree to which This man (laughs) is just a complete monster. Just a complete monster. And, uh, you know, and it's funny, you know, because there's a, well, he's a flawed artist, you know. (laughs) That's like calling Charles Manson a flawed country singer. Anyway.
3: All right. Well, I I thank you very much. uh, That was really helpful.
0: You're very welcome. And I hope that that helps. And I'm sorry for those of you who over the years have asked me to put together a, a... a reading list. Well, the first one you can find <laughs> is freedomainradio.com forward slash free uh, for all my books. That would be a recommended reading list. But uh, I will absolutely get down to it this fall, putting together uh, at least a, a first-round reading list with some reviews. And, and hopefully people can um, uh, have a look at uh, some of the books, at least those books that have influenced me enormously. So, And thanks. for Great question. Thank you. Bye. All right, Jake. Go ahead. You're up next. Hello, Gary. Yeah, go ahead. Hello, and welcome. Um,
1: <laughs> thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing?
4: You're good. Uh, I'm good. Um, so my question's a little bit abstract, so I'll try and be. Uh, um, I'll try and be as concise as possible. Um, so I'm, I'm a college student. I'm studying psychology. Um. I've I've always been like a like a competitive person. Um, I've enjoyed being on sports teams, uh, you know, just competitive sports,
0: games, etc. Um, it seems okay. like the last uh, I must of make years a comment I've been... here. I've yes. always enjoyed being on competitive teams, competitive sports, sports teams, etc. I think you've already hit the uh, non-concise buzzer because <laughs> I know what sports teams are. <laughs> okay. Just pointing that out. Okay. Go ahead. Great. Right.
4: Yeah, but uh, you know, video games, everything like that, um, and uh, just the past couple of years, I've been having trouble um, finding direction, I guess. And um, um, I've I've had a passion for philosophy and and reason and truth and everything. Um, and I'm just I'm wondering if there's advice that you have for maybe using those things to try and um, to try and find like a like a, a direction as far as, um, like a career path and everything.
0: But aren't you studying psychology? Um, I am, but, uh, that's so more I've been expecting. not you sort of like a, a train asking me which way it should go? I'd say, well, follow the track, right? You're on the track. <laughs>
4: um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not so positive it's what I want to do. Like, um, it's a very broad field. So even after you get a degree, there's no guarantee that you'll end up being a psychologist. <laughs> it's just sort of, uh, it's it's very open ended and the main So reason, why did you choose uh, psychology? The main reason I'm in college. Why did you choose psychology? Um, I'm very interested in it. Um I like to help people. Um it's it's interesting to me. Um I've had some mental health problems myself you could say. So uh it's something that's that's close to me I guess.
0: Are you depressed at the moment?
4: Um yeah the the past like 3 or 4 years I've I've been struggling with it on and off.
0: Are you depressed at the moment? No. Okay. All right. You. you I mean, you, your voice sounds a little flat.
4: Oh, I have. I have sort of a mellow tone, I suppose. <laughs> you have a, a what? A mellow uh, tone,
0: demeanor. Catatonic mellow potato potato. All right. Um, <laughs> and where are you in your degree? Um, I'm a
4: senior currently, but I'm probably going to graduate like half a year later. So.
0: so you're near the end?
4: Yes, there's about like three semesters to go. So, yes.
0: Okay. What aspect of philosophy is interesting to you?
4: Well, uh, objectivism and, um, and anarchism and um, the, the non-aggression principle, but they all just seemed to connect with me. Um, they, they just made a lot of sense. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know. As, as soon as I learned about them from your show and other sources, mostly on the Internet, um, it's just something I've been
0: interested in. And what do you want on your headstone when you're dead,
4: um, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Uh, I don't well, you think, should about think about the future it. all that much. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, listen, you should think about it. Everybody needs to write their own eulogy. Seriously, write your own eulogy. What do you want people to say about you when you're dead? And I think that's an important thing. I mean, not you're going to be dead. You won't care. But the point is that if you want your life to 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 mean something and if you're aiming at philosophy your life is either going to go big or go home like there's no middle ground in philosophy you're either going to do some really great stuff or you know die living in a cardboard box in a van down by the river on a steady diet of government cheese so so it is important to think about your eulogy to think about what you want people to say about you when you're dead you know when when us oh, sorry when when um Victor Hugo died uh, 19th century French novelist astonishingly popular i mean second only to dickens in his popularity dickens was just like a rock star of the 19th century i mean everywhere he went people mobbed him and i mean he was just a complete one of the one of the first modern celebrities And Victor Hugo was the same way. Victor Hugo had to go and write on an island in the middle of nowhere (laughs) because otherwise he couldn't get anything done. And he was one of these insane, hardy guys, like, ah, it's the middle of winter. I must rip off my shirt (laughs) and write in the cold. And, uh, you know, this very Gerard Depadure kind of uh, hard nosed stuff. But anyway, when he died, like 10,000 people walked down the profession, uh, the procession uh, of his coffin. 10,000 people. I mean, this is back when you couldn't tweet <laughs> to meet, right? I guess you could tweet your meet if you're Anthony Wiener, but you couldn't tweet to meet. And why, I mean, why not? Why not aim for something like that? It will give you some clarity and some courage about what it is that you, what you want to achieve. So, and there's, it doesn't mean that your eulogy have to, has to be like a big thing. It right? doesn't have to be this guy changed the course of human history. This guy illuminated mankind like a supernova in the cerebellum. It doesn't have to be anything like that. But, but it can be, you know, he was a, a nice, quiet neighbor. Uh, his kids never came on my lawn. And uh, he, you know, watched my cats while I was away. It can be that. Um, but boy, I tell you, a couple of years ago, I went to the funeral of a friend of mine's mom. She died uh, unexpectedly. It has had an aneurysm. Just died. Dropped down. She was, I think, in her late sixties, early seventies. So it wasn't like prime of her life or whatever. She just she died. And she'd been like a bookkeeper, and she was married twice to bad men, and she had only one son, and and she hadn't really done much with her life. And I did a eulogy and other people did eulogies. And frankly, was not the easiest speech writing I've ever done in my life because I didn't really know what to say. And one of her neighbors said, Ah yes. I remember her well. She always had lots of candy for the children at Halloween. Oh my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) I think that's terrifying. You know, she never left her shoes in the hallway of the apartment building. She always pushed her garbage right down the chute. Like, she didn't just leave it there, kind of wedged in there, When then you try and get yours in. She was that kind of woman. Magnificent. Her car was always quite clean. I never saw her in polyester. She had a mole that had hair coming out of it and quite often, quite often without even being prompted, she would just pluck it. Uh, What else? She was very efficient. She only read Reader's Digest condensed books, not the big ones, which I think are just full of filler. Um, she kept her freezer eerily defrosted. I don't know how she did that. Like she'd boil a kettle in there or something. Anyway, we could go on and on, But but people were just like reaching for anything to say about this ghost of a woman who passed through, leaving barely a ripple in life. I read a The Robert Frost poem about the road less traveled. As a reminder to myself that I did not want a eulogy about, he shone well in sunlight. He was a fine beacon for ships lost at sea (laughs) in the sunset if he stood by the beach. I just, I just, people didn't know what to say about this woman when she died. And of course, a lot of what they could have said, they didn't want to say. She kept her son close to her so that she didn't have to have other friends at his expense. Anyway, so if you think about your life as a whole and what kind of imprint you want to leave in the world, it can help you to organize what it is that you want to do. And if you're interested in philosophy and that's what you brought up as something that that motivates and moves you, well, nothing could be easier or harder. If you want to get into philosophy, we have this amazing thing called the internet. You may recognize it from our conversation. You can just start writing. You can start broadcasting. You can start publishing. You can do books. You can do articles. You can do reviews. You can bring your intellect out to the world and you can then wait for the feedback of people who read or review or peruse your stuff and then you can listen to them about what they want and you can attempt to compromise your interests with the needs of your audience and you can grow to bring as much philosophy to as much people as possible. It's possible, I mean I've done it, right? I'm not the only one who's done it either. So. You can do that kind of stuff, but the problem is that you're going to have to self-start that, right? And if you say mental health issues, struggle with depression off and on, and one of the reasons you may be feeling anxious is that your time in structure, right, drawing to a close, right? Since you were four or five years old, your days are all laid out for you like a train track, right? I mean, you get to choose a couple of courses, but... That's like choosing where you want to go on the train line. That's not the same as striking out into the woods on your own, right? So so you've had structure. Here's where you go. Here's where you sit. Here's what you read. Here's what you write. Here's what you learn. Here's what you have to do tonight when you go home. Here's when your test is going to be. It's a conveyor belt through other people's preferences. Same thing goes on in college. You have a little more freedom, but not a huge amount. Once you choose what here are the courses you need to take. Here are your prerequisites. You have a couple of options. But even those options, you got to pick from a list, right? And your time in this passive conveyor belt of other people's structures joined to a close, right? And now you face life uncharted. Life with no track, right? Does that make any sense?
4: Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's been one of the problems is I'm identifying that eventually I'm gonna have to do my own thing and and um, you know pave the way for myself and everything and maybe I'm subconsciously afraid of it or I don't think I'm ready for it I don't know but yeah it makes a lot of sense
0: well maybe is one of these words that tells me that we've got precisely nowhere in the conversation (laughs) which is you know okay but when you say maybe then you're basically saying well I don't know, and nothing has been illuminated or resolved. Right? I'm not criticizing. I'm just sort of pointing it out. Right?
4: No, no. I think um, I think you uh, made a lot of good points. I think it you you're definitely correct
0: to some to a to a good degree. Which you just restated the same thing, but with more words. Hey, weren't you going to be concise? <laughs> um, well, tell me. Tell me. What do you want your eulogy to sound like? Give me your eulogy.
4: Um, I'm, I'm really not sure, to be honest. I mean, I, I would want it to be meaningful, and um, I'd want to have some effect on, on people and, and you know, leave something behind. Um, but what? I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Well, then, you have no desires or preferences? Well, you said you wanted to have an effect on people. I assume you mean a positive effect, right? An arsonist has an effect on people. I'm, I'm sure you're not talking about that, right? <laughs> yes. You want to have a positive effect yes, on a positive. people, right? Yes. Um. So, what do you want to make them more rational? Do you want to make them more sensible? Do you want to make them happier? Do you want to make them more courageous? Do you want to make them more virtuous? Do you want to make them more cautious? Do you want to make them healthier? Do you want to make them wealthier? What is it that you want? How do you want to affect me
4: um, more rational and uh, honest with themselves because I, I think that's um the uh, the core problem is people aren't honest with themselves
0: okay, so uh, what dishonesty uh, with the South do you find the most prevalent in society?
4: Um... it's very abstract. Um, I just see, like, um, a point you bring up a lot is that people try to see the world um, in a different way because of um, to compensate for their own insecurities. And I I just see that a lot
0: in various ways in people. Let me put it another way because that's not actionable. I'm giving you project management 101. This is life management 101. You say you want to have an effect on people, well, what kind of effect? Well, I want to make them more rational. Well, if you want to make more people more rational, then you have to look at and find the biggest source of irrationality, right? If you say, I want to make people healthier, then you have to say to yourself, okay, well, what is the biggest single source of people's unhealth, right? So again, this is obviously, you're not used to this, that's okay, right? I mean, it's, it's sad, I think, that, that parents in schools and all that don't, you, in your early 20s, I bet, and you don't know how to organize your life. It's sad, it's not your fault, right? But I'm just going to give you that 101, right? And this doesn't have to be your answer. This is just how you go about figuring out what you want to do with your life. So you want what will make you the happiest. Let's just assume that that's true and make you the happiest to make people more rational, right? So then you have to say, what is the biggest single source of irrationality in the world? You say, well, people not being honest with themselves, that's, you know, I want to make people more honest with themselves. It's not actionable, right? Because if I, if you say, Mm -hmm. if I say, okay, we'll start, start on that now tonight, you wouldn't have anything to do, right? Right. Other than cross your fingers, <laughs> I hope that the rational <laughs> elves go down the chimneys of people's ears and take up residence, right? So, in and this is, there's no answer to this. That's it's important and objective. But what for you, in your experience in life, is the single biggest source of irrationality or manifestation of irrationality? Um.
4: I would say uh, religious institutions, public schools, probably. probably so uh, public
0: schools are so, but, but I mean, that's, that's how people are made irrational. But what's the man, how does that irrationality show up? Cause it's like, there's a difference between churches and religion, right? So if I said, well, the biggest single source of irrationality is religion, that would be different than saying it's churches, right? Right. So what is, the, what is the single biggest manifestation of irrationality in your thoughts at the moment? It's not a final answer, right?
4: When you say a manifestation, like they're, like, what do people do that's irrational?
0: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, let me give you an example because I know this uh, is God. tough, right? Without a template. So for me, the biggest example of okay. irrationality in life... Is people's simultaneous rejection of and worship of violence. That to me is the biggest single manifestation. It's their rejection of violence and their worship of violence. Right? You should not steal. The government must steal. I'll call it taxation, right? You 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 hit your kids telling them not to hit other people. Right, you, you you say, don't kidnap people, uh, but the state should do it for people who smoke the wrong piece of vegetation. Right, Murder is wrong. Oh, you're in a uniform. Murder is patriotism. Murder is protecting and serving and blah, blah, blah. That first call to say, I was in the service. Don't insult the word service by calling that service. I'm forced at gunpoint to pay for your ass in uniform and then you go around killing people around the world. I don't think you're serving anyone except the CEO of Halliburton. So... That for me is is that this simultaneous rejection of violence and complete worship of violence is the biggest manifestation. And to me, it comes right back to to childhood and blah bloody blah, blah. So that's why I focus a lot on personal life on 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 childhood, on on history, on parenting, on all that kind of stuff, while at the same time exploring how these ideas manifest themselves in in the government and and in religion, right? As people say, thou shall not kill. That's a high ideal. But God goes around killing everyone, literally everyone except Noah and his family in the Old Testament. And people are like, well, that guy's really great. It's like, wh- what? Don't kill. Universal genocide. How do you square that freaking circle where you say this is the highest moral ideal who continually breaks and, and violates the most sacred moral commandments he provides to everyone else? I mean, I, I just, I, it's like being a pro-Semitic and worshipping Hitler. It just makes no sense to me. But again, this, this stuff all goes back to childhood. So this is my particular bugaboo, right? People's love of and hatred of violence that is simultaneous in, in their lives. And you don't have anything, you don't have to have anything that sort of thought out. I mean, I've had 30 years to work on it, but... Maybe it's that for you, but what, what is the manifestation of people's irrationality? Where do you see it? Um, how do you know people um, the, are irrational? People... Right? You say, I want to make people rational, but how do you know they're irrational? What What is it that convinces you? So I say, well, I want to make people thin because everyone around me is 400 pounds. Well, now I know why I want to make them thin because they're 400 pounds. How do you know they're fat? 400 pounds? How do you know people are irrational?
4: Um, when, I, when I see the the political issues and such that people talk about um people's views they they just they don't make sense they're inconsistent um if you look at things like gun control that you know um the cities with higher gun control of higher crime and they they just ignore the facts and they um they just they base their conclusions off just visceral emotions, and that's about it.
0: Okay. So people, um, quote, think emotionally, right? Yes. Okay. And, I mean, I would agree with that. Not that that means anything. I just I happen to agree with it and make it true. But what is the cure for that?
4: Um, more reason, and um, teaching people how to try and shrug off emotion and, and look at the evidence um, when when dealing
0: with with issues. Why do you think that's the cure?
4: Um, well, because evidence works, and <laughs> just like just like science works, and you know, religion doesn't.
0: Okay, so this would be another life planning 101 moment, which is that you think you have an answer, but you in fact don't, at least scientifically. And there are studies that are very clear and very consistent that people who say have a particular political persuasion, when they are presented with Facts and evidence, not opinions, facts and evidence contrary to their position, their original position hardens. They become more intransigent. So when when people who have a particular Republican or Democrat or whatever, let's say that they're for gun control and then they see the facts against gun control, they're actually more for gun control after the facts and vice versa. So I think it's really important to understand that if you think reason and evidence is going to change people's minds, that's a hypothesis. And since you're into science, you want to first test your hypothesis, right? Because if you end up with a false hypothesis, you will literally waste your life. Reason and evidence tend to reinforce prejudice. And there's many, many studies that have been done in this area. I'm just trying to dig one up at the moment so I can give you some more details. Uh, because I just read it yesterday, but God help me, I didn't bookmark it. Fool that I was. Uh, but um, you want, if you have a theory, right, you, you can't assume that any of your theories, <clears throat> excuse me, are valid, right? Nobody can. And what you need to do is, uh, if you have a hypothesis, to check it, right? And it bugs me when libertarians and objectivists and anarchists and so on say, well, this is what we got to do, or this is how I'm going to solve things. I'm going to go into politics. I'm going to go become an academic. I'm going to write books. I'm going to give people good arguments or whatever. Um, How is that? How do we know whether that's true? Well, how do we know whether that's true or not? And it doesn't actually work to provide people facts arguments, evidence, you name it. What it will do is it will harden their original position because people don't make decisions based on facts and evidence. If people made decisions based on facts and evidence, there would in no way, shape, or form be such a wide divergence of political and cultural opinions, right? I mean, do you think that religious people base their beliefs on facts and evidence? No. Right. Do you think that... People who have uh, um, uh, who prefer particular political parties, do they look at the uh, the, the the facts and evidence uh, for those political parties? No. No. Um, what about people who are into particular sports teams? Do they uh, look at all the various sports teams around the country and decide which one is is best? Um. Usually not. <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> You've got to give me that one. That's an absolute. Oh, thanks. I think I found it. Um, that's an absolute. I mean, there's nobody who says, well, I think that the best team is the New York Knicks, so I'm going to go move there. And wherever you live, that's your sports team, right? Yeah. Do you think that people uh, think that they choose their culture, if you're sort of Greek or Turkish or, or whatever, do, do people pick their culture based on reason and evidence? Do so they look at all the cultures? around the world and and which one is the best no no do you think that people choose their spouses based upon a rational and objective analysis of the qualities that they're looking for the values that they share uh and so on
4: very rarely i I doubt it
0: Very rarely. Can you think uh, outside of of, of science, and even science is pretty messed up. I mean, just look at some of those global global warming emails that were leaked a couple of years ago where basically people were just conspiring to keep information hidden and conspiring to keep people out of journals. And there's all that kind of crap going on as well, right? Look at the, quote, science behind SSRIs or other psychotropics and all, all complete nonsense. But outside of certain particular areas of science and mathematics, can you think of an example where people base their perspectives on reason and evidence primarily? Um, no, not really. Let me read to you an article, just a little bit from it. It's called How Facts Backfire. It's uh, Boston.com, which I think is in Chicago. A few, a recently a few political scientists have begun to discover a human tendency deeply discouraging to anyone with faith in the power of information our ah, faith it is it's this facts don't necessarily have the power to change our minds in fact quite the opposite in a series of studies in 2005 and 2006 researchers at the university of michigan found that when misinformed people particularly political partisans were exposed to corrected facts in news stories, they rarely changed their minds. In fact, they often became more strongly set in their beliefs. Facts, they found, were not curing misinformation. Like an underpowered antibiotic, facts could actually make misinformation even stronger. And uh, you can read the whole article, I won't bore you with the whole thing, but... You know, there's an old statement, which is very true, which says that you cannot reason a man out of a opinion he has not been reasoned into. So, if you want reason and evidence to change people's minds, you first of all have to look for those aspects of their thinking, which were created through a strict adherence to reason and evidence. Right. Right. And if you can't think of any, that's probably why it's a little tough to figure out what to do with your life, right? Yeah. People ignorant of the facts, in the article it says, people ignorant of the facts could simply choose not to vote. (laughs) But instead, (laughs) it appears that misinformed people often have some of the strongest political opinions. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) A striking recent example was a study done in the year 2000 by this dude. <laughs> he led an influential experiment in which more than 1,000 Illinois residents, are there really 1,000 people in Illinois? <laughs> Maybe that's like with mirrors. It's like a fun house. Maybe he went into fun houses like, whoa, people in Illinois, are all kinds of warps. Anyway, more than 1,000 Illinois residents were asked questions about welfare, the percentage of the federal budget spent on welfare, the number of people enrolled in the program, the percentage of enrollees who are black, and the average payout. More than half indicated that they were confident that their answers were correct. But in fact, only (laughs) three... It's too sad. I can't. It's too sad. Remember I said I was crowded in with these lemmings all rushing off a cliff to our doom? (laughs) Ah, let me out of the subway. I know where we're going. To hell itself. Blow it out your ass. Somebody really likes my Duke Nukem (laughs) voice. What are you waiting for, Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was Isabella saying today? The Schwarzenegger quote. (laughs) Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it now! (laughs) Do it now! (laughs) It almost feels like he's swallowing half the English language sideways. (laughs) Anyway, so sorry. uh, All these people, more than half, indicated they were incredibly confident that their answers were correct, but in fact, only only three percent of the people got more than half the questions (laughs) right. (laughs) Perhaps more disturbingly, the ones who were the most confident they were right. Well, by and large, the ones who knew the least about the topic. Most of these participants expressed views that suggested a strong anti-welfare bias. Studies by other researchers have observed similar phenomena. I'm going to start that whole sentence again. <laughs> Studies by other researchers have observed similar phenomena when addressing education, healthcare reform, immigration, affirmative action, gun control, and other issues that tend to attract, attract strong partisan opinion. The researcher calls this sort of response the I know I'm right syndrome and considers it a potentially formidable problem in a democratic system. (laughs) Do you know, I just wanted to mention that that railway spike that was driven through your head might present a potentially formidable problem to wearing headphones (laughs) or going through a metal detector or living. It implies, he wrote, not only that most people will resist correcting their factual beliefs, but also that the very people who most need to correct them will be least likely to do so. And they get the same vote that you and I would get, Um, which is why I don't vote. I'm just just not mingling my competence in with these truly dangerous anti-knowledge idiots. So, uh, this is, there he writes, is, there, is a substantial body of psychological research showing that people tend to interpret information with an eye towards reinforcing their pre-existing views, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Anyway, you're in psych. I don't need to tell you all this stuff. Do the research. If you want to change the world, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself. Anyway. If you want to change the world, you need to figure out why the world is the way it is. And the world is the way it is because people are bludgeoned with prejudice and bias and propaganda and lies and bullying. And they have no idea. And they they can't think. They don't think. They're allergic to thinking. In 2005, amid the strident calls for better media fact-checking in the wake of the Iraq war, some dudes devised an experiment in which participants were given mock news stories. You know what's strange about that? They're all mock news stories <laughs> because they mock. Right? What is it? I think it's, um, oh, gosh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. He said, if a man doesn't read the paper, paper, he's uninformed. If he reads the paper, he's misinformed. So they were given mock news stories, each of which contained a provably false statement, though nonetheless widespread, claim made by a political figure that there were WMDs found in Iraq. There weren't. That the Bush tax cuts increased government revenues, revenues actually fell, and that the Bush administration imposed a total ban on stem cell research. Only certain federal funding was restricted. Nyhan inserted a clear direct correction after each piece of misinformation and then measured the study participants to see if the correction took. For the most part, do you think it did? Think it didn't? Really didn't. The participants, who self-described as conservative, believed the misinformation on WMDs and taxes even more strongly after being given the correction. So they say, WMDs have been found. Uh, actually, no, they weren't. That's completely incorrect. They believed more strongly that WMDs had been found after they were told that it, they weren't. With these two, those two issues, the more strongly the participant cared about the topic a factor known as salience, the stronger the backfire. The effect was slightly different on self-identified liberals. When they read corrected stories about themselves, the corrections didn't backfire, but the readers still did ignore the inconvenient fact that the Bush, uh, Bush administration's restrictions weren't total. Anyway, we could go on and on with this stuff. and I just wanted to mention that if you want to change the world, I think that's wonderful. I'm intensely, I intensely admire people who want to change the world. But, boy, you really got to figure out why the world is the way it is and just saying, well, I'll give people better arguments and information and they'll change their minds. Well, I think that you've got science against you, uh, if you're looking at that. You're you're like a potter saying, Well, I'm just gonna, you know, make an entire pottery store worth of stuff from water. It's like actually without the clay in there, you're basically just splashing around like a four-year-old in a in a tub. So I just wanted to uh Uh, I wanted to point this out. And if you think that, well, I just talk to people who are smarter or better informed or better educated. eh, Sorry, that doesn't work either. A 2006 study by Charles Tabor and Milton Lodge at Stony Brook University showed that politically sophisticated thinkers were even less open to new information than less sophisticated types. These people may be factually right about 90% of things, but their confidence makes it nearly impossible to correct the 10% on which they're totally wrong. Um Tabor and Lodge found this alarming because engaged, sophisticated thinkers are the very folks on whom democratic theory relies most heavily. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I just really wanted to um, – I wanted to point out that um, reason and evidence is not going to save us. Uh, there's just there's no scientific evidence for that. And as a guy who's been pointing out that taxation is theft for 30 years, I can guarantee you that the vast majority of people that you meet will not be swayed. And you even told me that yourself at the very beginning of our talk tonight, my friend. You said, these ideas really resonated with me. I was really drawn to these ideas. It was not reason and evidence that convinced even you, but a kind of emotional compatibility. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I mean, it was the same thing with me too. I mean, that that's self-knowledge. Why was I drawn to these ideas? Was it because against the great resistance of my deepest desires, I surrendered my virginity to reason and evidence? No. I was emotionally drawn to these ideas. Now, I'm aware of that, and I've spent a good deal of time and energy reading opposite opinions, as I talked about earlier in the show. But if you want to get into philosophy, then you want to be a potter You better know the difference between clay and water, or you really will waste a lot of time. Does this make any sense?
4: Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: So I I don't want to suggest don't do it. Do it. Do it by all means. But if you're going to take on something as important as as saving the world, um, you really, really got to study how best to approach it. Which is, I'll do the reason and evidence thing for sure. I mean, I've done dozens of debates on this show where I've even corrected people about misstatements right there, right there. Tom Willikatz did this debate where he said, well, you know, private insurance, they they don't pay out their claims. And I pointed out that Medicare has a far higher rate of denying claims than private insurance in the U.S. Did he change his mind? Did he apologize? No. With Jake DiLiberto, I said the CIA had no advance warning and no prior knowledge of the fall of Russia. He said, yes, they did. I read him two or three articles pointing out that they did not. Did he change? Did he apologize? Did he retract? Absolutely not. I mean, openly, clearly, factual statements. You can correct people live in a recorded format that they can view again. And will they retract? No. Storm Clouds Gathering is still convinced that I watched some stupid ass documentary about a hundred year light bulb. <laughs> no evidence that I did. It doesn't, like, it's just, it's the way we are. We're crippled. We're all in wheelchairs. At least majority of people are in wheelchairs. They don't know it. They think that they're LeBron James. He's not in a wheelchair, right? They get that sports reference right? I don't know much about sports. All right. Anyway, so uh, I just really want to point that out. Um, if you're going to do it, I mean, I you know, focus. We have to, we have to create uh, people who can think. And very few people will make that transition, but if we tell people to stop hitting and yelling at their kids and stop dumping them in daycares and stuff, we have a chance to raise a generation of people who will, whose very identity will not be dismantled through the process of thinking. And most people, when you invite them to the reason and evidence party, what what you think is, hey, I'm giving you these great tools to become a better and, and nicer person and, and think more clearly and, and be virtuous and so on. What they see is is you're opening up a TARDIS to interstellar space. Hey, step in here. I'm going to beam you halfway between here and Alpha Centauri. Don't worry. For the three seconds before your head explodes, the view is fabulous. Uh, that's how they experience it. So uh, that's just my annoying life plan 101. Um, I hope that you will uh, uh, join those of us who are trying to help the world. But you've really got to be very critical about the ways that you think it can work. Because if you're anything like me, just don't waste as much time as I did trying to do stuff that doesn't work. That's my hard one experience. So thank you very much for the call. I'm afraid we're going to call it a night. Thanks to Mike uh, uh, for, for running the show. I'm sorry about a few technical issues. I'm glad we got them sorted out. FDRURL.com forward slash donate if you would like to help the show out. Um, I believe it's the most important show in the world today. We have almost 20 million downloads on YouTube and on MySpace. Oh, no, MySpace broke <laughs> up with us too, right? <laughs> Sadly. I'm sorry. to be been making fun of this guy's heartache. But um, um, so, yeah, fdrurl.com forward slash donate if you'd like to help out. If you've got no money, no problem. Please just share some videos. You know, it's an important thing to do. You know, the emails that I got from people who decided not to hack off half their child's foreskin uh, were prodigious um, share that stuff and you can literally save people from genital mutilation um, share the, the truth about spanking you can save people from being hit by their parents share this stuff it will change lives you know there's this cheesy little it's true it's a cheesy little thing there's a little donation around where i live you can donate to the animal shelter say your spare change will not change the world but it sure as hell will change the world for that one pet And it's very true. Um, You share the stuff about peaceful parenting. You share the stuff about ethics. You share the stuff about spanking. You share the stuff about circumcision. You even share the stuff about you know Syria, current events. It's gonna shake people's matrix input. And you won't change the world through that, but you will change someone's world. And that is really more than we can ask for. So I hope you will do that. Thank you so much. Have a great night. I will see you on Sunday.